Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to say for the first time, since we're formally in December, I'm going to say Merry Christmas. I'm going to look down to make sure the stage doesn't open up and swallow me into the depths of the earth. But I think this year of all years, we need a reason to be happy. And the birth of Jesus is the only real reason to be happy. So Merry Christmas to all. The next two weeks, to today and next week, I'm going to talk about subjects. If you think about December, December is a, uh, an interesting month because there's a lot of competing themes that can be in our minds. The birth of Jesus, obviously, one of them. And I have plans to talk about that closer to the day that it's celebrated, even though it almost certainly was not when he was really born. But I don't care. Everybody will be thinking about the baby Jesus. And I want to think about the baby Jesus, the adult Jesus, and the heavenly Jesus. So as long as we're thinking about Jesus, I'm, I'm really happy about that. But December is also the last month of the year. And I really will be kind of happy to say goodbye to 2020 in a lot of ways. But I want to talk this morning about things that end. December, this year is ending. You know, we, we look back, we see how things have gone and it ends and something new starts. And one of the important aspects that I want to call out of something that's going to end for all of us is life. I've been known before to talk about really very uplifting subjects. This one doesn't seem that way, but it's something that's going to happen to every single one of us. And yet, I think most, the majority of humanity goes through life with a blind spot, pretending to not think about it, to not look at it, to not realize it. But I guarantee you there is no one here alive today on the face of the earth who saw the Civil War. Certainly no one that saw the Revolutionary War. The world changes as we move through our lives. We are here, we live for a while, and we're gone. And so I think it's really, really important to realize that that's going to be me, and that's going to be you. So things that end life. I started out with the most uplifting statement I could put on the handout. If you look at the very top of it, I mean, it says we are all going to die. And so for those of you that are listening and watching at home and those of us here, I'm going to ask you to repeat that with me. Let's get it over with. I think once we say it out loud, it becomes a little more real. And once it's real, it has the ability, I think, to come into our thinking, come into our approach to life. So you're ready to say, again, my apologies, but... I think it's something that we never say out loud, but I think it's important that we do. So here we go. I am going to die. One of these days, there will be a day when I won't be here. So what does that do to the days I am here? What does that do to the time that I have? What does that do with how I interact and respond to the people who are still here? So what does the Bible say about the end of life? Let's look at that here for a little bit this morning. James 2.26, uh, James chapter 2, James has been speaking about that you cannot practice, you cannot hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and show partiality, show favoritism, show prejudice. You cannot do it. The prejudice he's talking about in the first part of chapter 2 is between rich and poor. It's still here today. 
He did not specifically call out white, black, or any kind of prejudice based on outward appearances, but the application is the same. Rich poor is based on outward appearances. Everybody, when they wake up in the morning, looks pretty much the same, but then throughout the day, rich poor have a different approach to things. James says that's wrong. For us today, that applies to any form of prejudice based on outward appearances. It wouldn't make any sense to, I think most of us, if you could imagine a world where people were prejudiced against bald people. I don't know who any bald people are. Yeah, okay, yeah, me. But I mean, that would make no sense, would it? Because me not having hair on my head, or at least more than like six or seven of them, does not mean that I should be treated any differently. Why? Well, then why do we treat people any differently? Because there's a slight difference in shade of skin. We are all God's children. God loves each and every one of us. How can I say I love God if I do not love my brother? Makes me a liar. That's a big part of James chapter two. Then he talks about faith and works. And here he's been talking about faith without works is dead. You cannot really have faith in God unless it demonstrates itself in your actions. It's not that these actions are saving you. No, but if I say I have faith and yet I don't love my neighbor, I don't do good works, which I should have been created to be doing anyway, then I'm really not having any faith. I say I have faith, but I don't. And so as a comparison to that, in the same way that the, here's this verse, in the same way that the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. But the body apart from the spirit, whether that's the breath of life, when the breathing stops, and when that happens, the spirit that is within us goes back to God. The body apart from the spirit is dead. In my life, this is not a bragging part here, but I have only been in the presence so far of one person as they died. I don't know whether some of you have been with a lot of people or no people, but it was a, it was a changing moment for me because here was this person struggling for every breath and then the struggle was over. Now, that person happened to be my mother. Um, she taught me a lot of things in my life she taught me one last lesson that, Gene, you won't always be here. As she is no longer here. Every one of us has an appointment with death. What will I do while I'm here? The body apart from the spirit is dead. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, the preacher says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. And the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. The body will decay, returns to dust, returns to, if you think about the earth, the dust from which Adam was made, we're all part of, I mean, we're going to go back to the way we were before we ever were here. The body will go away and the spirit goes back to God who gave it. Life begins when God gives a spirit and life ends when that spirit returns to God end of life. I got quite a few verses here from an individual who faced the end of his life, who was told his life was going to end. 
And this is the King Hezekiah, king of uh, Judah, a very important king. And he gets told, essentially, set your house in order because you're about to die. Now, I don't think most of us are going to get that kind of heads up. By the way, get it all in order because your time is short. Hezekiah was given that, in many ways, gift. And so here's some of his thoughts that Isaiah records. Isaiah and Hezekiah were contemporaries. They were living at the same time. So it's, a, it's quite a few verses, but I want you to hear what Hezekiah said when faced with death. Let's read, starting in Isaiah 38. This is the first five verses. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Jehovah, thus says the Lord, Set thy house in order, for you shall die and not live. Well, Believe it or not, that applies to every one of us. Perhaps we need to make sure every morning when we wake up that our house is in order, that our lives are in order. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto Jehovah and said, Remember now, O Jehovah, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. It's okay to be sad. When you see death approaching for yourself or someone you love. There's no problem with that. Because no one likes to be parted from people that we care about. Hezekiah was weeping because I'm sure he had things he wanted to do. There were people he cared about. People he wanted to spend more time with. And he's told, time is up. Time is up. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says Jehovah, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen your tears, I will add unto your days fifteen years. Hezekiah gets a reprieve. He gets additional time. There's no guarantee that we're going to have any time. There's not. But he is given extra time to continue doing what God wants him to do. We've been given extra time today, right now, to be doing what God wants us to do. How will I use today? I don't know about tomorrow, but how will I use today? Let's continue reading. Verses 9 through 19. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. This is after he had been given these 15 years by God. I said, this is Hezekiah, I said, in the new tide of my days, I shall go into the gates of Sheol. Sheol was the Old Testament word for where the dead went. The unseen place, sometimes called the pit, simply out of this world into the next, whatever that brought. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see Jehovah, even Jehovah, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of this world. My dwelling is removed and is carried away from me as a shepherd's tent. I have rolled up like a weaver my life. He will cut me off from the loom from day even into night. Will you make an end of me? He sees the end of his life coming. That's what he was thinking, laying on his bed sick after Isaiah said, this is it. Well, my life is going to be rolled up. My life will one day be over. It is. Teenagers, 
love teenagers, but they think they're going to live forever, especially the boys. And that's why the boys do so many stupid things. They think they can leap from building to building or who knows what. I'm going to live forever. Well, you have reckless young men. There are very few reckless old men. Because being reckless, thinking you're going to live forever, doesn't work out that way. Continuing with Hezekiah. He then says, you know, after he had this expression of grief, after he had this crying out period, look what he says. I quieted myself until morning. As a lion, so he breaks all my bones. This is talking about how he feels God is, is changing him by breaking his bones, making him realize you're not going to be here. From day even into night will you make an end of me. Like a swallow or a crane, so did I chatter. I did moan as a dove. Mine eyes failed with looking upward, O Lord. I am oppressed. Be you my surety. Be you my confidence. Be my confidence, Lord. Let me hold on to you. What shall I say? He, God, has spoke, both spoken unto me and himself has done it. I shall go softly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. He's following God, but he still doesn't want to go. He still doesn't want to go. O Lord, by these things men live, and holy therein is the life of my spirit. Wherefore, recover thou me and make me to live. Behold, it was for my peace that I had great bitterness. But you have in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind my back. For Sheol, the place where the dead go, cannot praise you. Death cannot celebrate you. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living, he shall praise you as I do this day. Once you're dead, the time for praising God, Hezekiah is saying, is over. Doesn't do you any good once you die to be thinking, I should have lived my life differently. Now's the time to praise God. Look at that closing statement. The living, the living shall praise God. You're alive today. I'm alive today. Let's use today to praise God. The nativity scene, it's going to be out here a few, moments, a few hours from now, is an opportunity to show people who are thinking about Jesus the gift God has given to the world. His son. What a great way to show God's love for everybody. Well, let's show God's love every day we're here. Every day we're here. Back in Genesis 27, verse 2, we read, And he said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. I've been saying that for a while this morning. I don't know. What day will that be? Is that going to be August the 3rd, 2032? I mean, I have no idea what the day of my death is. We don't know. Hezekiah was given a gift. He knew. I don't know, but I should respond the same way Hezekiah said to respond. By being among the living, the living should praise God. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He, God, has swallowed up death forever, and the Lord Jehovah wipe away tears from off all faces and the reproach of his people shall be taken away from off all the earth for Jehovah has spoken it. There's quotations of that over the very end of the book of Revelation. When God gathers his people together in eternity and there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death. No more death. In Hosea, 
chapter 13, verse 14. God here speaking says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, from the place where the dead have gone. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are thy plagues? O Sheol, where is thy destruction? Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. Paul quotes this in the book of Romans. Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is your victory? The victory is Jesus' gift to us, which frees us from sin. The power of Sheol, the power of death. Very, very true. In Luke 16, we have what's many times called a parable. Uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It is the only parable that mentions an individual's name, Lazarus. Which makes people wonder, is this a parable? Or is this something that had happened? Is, what's, if it's a parable, you've got to be careful. You don't push parables too far. Every word doesn't always have a direct meaning to something. But I believe Jesus wouldn't have just made up a story to make one point with so much detail. So I believe this is describing in words that we can understand as best we can understand the kind of circumstances that we will be viewing once we have, in fact, passed on over to the other side. So look with me, if you will, at the parable, I will call it a parable anyway, of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, picking up in verse 19. There was a certain rich man, and he was clothed in purple and fine linen, very sumptuously. I love that word. He must have had a really high time. He was living in the country. We might have said high on the hall, right? He was living well. But a certain beggar named Lazarus was laid at his gate, full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Yes, even in the dogs came and licked his sores. I can't imagine somebody that's having a tougher time than Lazarus within a short little distance from someone that was living sumptuously. The rich Roman society would often have banquets that would last for days. They would kill, I, I forget what I read, but it was dozens and dozens of, of birds in order to cut the tongues out and fricassee, have these delicacies. Personally, I'd rather just have a hamburger than some kind of goose tongue or something like that. But whatever it was they were eating, right? The point was it was not something that was just widely available to everyone. Rich, rich, rich in the presence of so much misery. Lazarus. Continuing on. And it came to pass that the beggar died. The beggar died. Did anyone even notice when he had died? The angels did. Was low, and that he was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. I suspect he may have been carted off and pitched into a common grave. Was he there a day or two before anybody even noticed he was dead? I don't know. But he was a poor man, a beggar. There may very well have been no one to mourn his passage but the angels. Notice he had died. Look at the next statement. The rich man also died and was buried. Almost certainly the rich man had a lot of people noticing. A lot of people noticing. Probably put into a really fancy grave. People mourning and weeping. Big difference. Even to the point, almost certainly here of death. 
And in Hades, he, this is the rich man, Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So the rich man has gone to this unseen world that the Greek word here is called Hades, and he's not where Lazarus went. He's in torment. He had been in sumptuous living, fancy dancy living. Now he's in torment, and Lazarus, who had been laying at the gate in sores, not exactly enjoying himself, is apparently being comforted by Abraham himself. And notice that. Far off, far off from the rich man. Continue. And he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Stop right there for a moment. Is that a hint to me that the rich man actually knew Lazarus? The rich man uses his name. Could it be that the rich man had been dining sumptuously, driving past, so to speak, the beggar Lazarus at his front gate every day? He knows his name. He knows his name. And yet, while he was living, he did nothing, nothing to help Lazarus. Now that the rich man is dead, he needs Lazarus' help. Send Lazarus that he may simply dip the tip of his finger in water to put it on my tongue because, as he says, I am in anguish in this flame. Now, I don't have any real reason to think that flames are going to be literal flames, but flame is designed to say this is not nice. This is not nice. Abraham said, son. Abraham said, son. Remember that you in your lifetime received good things Sumptuous living, big banquets, who knows what. And Lazarus, in like manner, received evil things. That's the way it had been. That's what we were told. But now, it's changed, hasn't it? It has reversed itself. But now, Lazarus is comforted, and you are in anguish. You are in anguish. Besides this, there is a, a gulf great golf fix so that anyone that would want to change sides and go over to help out or something like that would pass from here to there to you may not be able that none may cross from there to us once we're dead as Hezekiah had said it's too late to want to decide to start praising God at that point Lazarus lived his life he had what he had when he was alive and now Lazarus lived his life, suffered a lot, but now. And he said, this is the rich man again. Essentially, well, if I, you're thinking, right? If I can't get any kind of help, his next response is this. I pray thee therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Well, at the very least, if there's no help for me, send Lazarus back and let him talk to my brothers. Have them change course because they really shouldn't come to where I am. And the big point of the parable here is next. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. No sense in sending Lazarus back. Let him listen to Moses and the prophets. 
God's already spoken to his people. The rich man said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one goes back to them from the dead, they will change. What does Abraham say? If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The ultimate point of this is that the Jewish people who had been given God's word, who had been given the oracles of God, the people alive at that time, most all of them could have had their lives in the right direction. They could have been loving God and loving their neighbor, but they seemed to be more interested in loving themselves instead of caring for people. They'd already had the prophets. They already had Moses. Moses is the one that God told to tell the people, love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. They'd already had that. Rich man sure didn't seem to be loving his neighbor, did he? So here, the people that had had Moses and the prophets, the predictions being made, they're not going to listen if one rise from the dead. And who would that be, of course? Jesus. You're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets. You're not going to listen to Jesus rose from the dead because you've already got the message of God. John 6, verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. The fathers here talking about the Jewish people during the wandering in the wilderness where God fed them with manna, bread from heaven. The word manna means, what's this? They didn't know what it was. That's what manna means. What is this? God directly fed the people with bread, and yet they still died. Bread from heaven, from God, and the people still died. However, the fathers who ate the manna died in the wilderness. They died anyway. But Jesus then said, he who eats this bread will live forever. What bread, Jesus? Those who eat the bread of life which came down out of heaven, Jesus his teaching, people who follow after him, people who, as we're going to do in a few moments, are members of his family who partake of the Lord's Supper, where we commune with God, we put our lives into the light to see how we are living compared to what he wants, and where we also reaffirm our own brotherhood and sisterhood. It's that bread, the bread of life that Jesus gives, that will enable us to live forever live forever. Jesus certainly is the real bread of life. Really, truly, this is going to be hard to think through, but really, truly, physical death is not important for members of God's family. It's not. Why? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, coming to the end. I won't be beating the point of dying for hours, I promise. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. There are grave sites that you can see from the first century where pagan Romans had put up these tear-bringing poems and laments to Young girls who had died, little baby girls, most children didn't make it. 30, 40% died before the age of two. I've seen some little children left them to death. I would hate a world where so many of them died. And they're crying out because they know they're not going to ever see this little bouncing baby girl again. 
Paul says, I don't want you, members of God's family, sorrowing the way they are. Why? Because the people that die who are members of God's family have merely fallen asleep. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who, notice again, sleep in Jesus. Sleep in Jesus. Back here in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Stephen, who's been recounting the history of God's people before the Sanhedrin, before the crowd, is when at the end of his life, then he, Stephen, knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he, Stephen, what? The passage could have said, died. The passage could have said, had a big stone hit him in the head. The passage didn't say that. The passage said, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. Death is but sleeping to a child of God. And I, I picture ourselves, it's kind of like if you've ever raised kids when they're four, five, six years old, what do they often need in the afternoon? A nap, right? And what's the last thing the kids seem to want to do? I don't want a nap. I used to have to trick, deceive, sorry. Used to have to trick and deceive my daughter. I would go in and lay down with her. She would say, I don't want a nap. I'd say, that's okay, we're just gonna lay here on the big bed. What would happen after 10 or 15 minutes? She would fall asleep and I would slip right out. She'd say, I didn't want a nap, apparently you did. Well, I really wonder sometimes if this is kind of how we are. Like little children who say, I don't want to go to sleep. God says that you have no idea how you're going to feel when you wake up from that short nap. That short, short nap. Last slide. Ecclesiastes 12, 1. He says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. You know, it is a true thing to say you're never again going to be as young as you are right now. If I were to ask, I'm not going to, how old each of us were, you know what? Tomorrow, if you live that long, you'll be a day older. So every day I'm alive is a youthful day compared to what might come in the future. When I'm in this youth, as old as I feel right now anyway, what does the preacher say in Ecclesiastes? Remember your creator. What did Hezekiah say? The living shall praise God. While today is called today, use it to serve our Father. Since life is a gift of God, use it to find pleasure each day to serve God and remember our Creator. So my question this morning is, do you know our Creator? Do you know our Father? This Father who created the world, who gave you life, who gave me life, loves us enough, even when we did our own thing, even when we did what we wanted to do, despite knowing what God wanted us to do. When we chose to disobey and to do what we wanted to do, He loved us enough that while we were sinners, He sent His Son into the world, who was born, we're gonna remember this afternoon, he lived his life and he died so that I 
might have the opportunity to be forgiven of my sins and to go home and live with him. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know our Father, you need to, you need to today. If you're already a member of God's family, but you have not been living the way he wants, if you have not been showing the love for God and your neighbor that you need to, it's very easy to come and say, I need to get back on track. I want to love God because he loves me. If there's any way in which we can help, whether you're at home or whether you're here, please, please don't let today slip away without showing praise and glory to our Father. Come as we stand and sing.